Good morning. <laughs> Thank you, worship team, for joining us all together in praise to the Lord. Let's pray before we look into God's word. Lord, we just thank you for the fact that you are so praiseworthy and that you've done so much for us and that you lead us by your word and by prayer and through fellowship. And Lord, that you uh, care about us and you want us to go the right way and have the best of you. Pray, Lord, that you would now uh, use this time to help us know your word better, be able to live it out in a, in a better way, and to be a light to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus asked his disciples. And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Pete and Jesus said, <clears throat> you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. You know, that's a play on words because the word Peter in the Greek is the word rock. And then he said, you are Peter. So he says, you are rock. And on this rock, but it's, it's a little bit different. The rock is, the word Peter is a stone, and the word rock is a bedrock that you would build a foundation on. So he was making a play on words, but he was saying that Peter had it right. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I will build my church on this. Now, as you know, I've referred back to that passage many times as we've been going through the book of Acts. And the reason I've done so is because the book of Acts tells the story of Christ building his church. That's what it is. And Jesus says that the foundation of his church, the rock on which it is built, will be the same as Peter's confession of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of God, the living Son of God. And he said the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. It means to stop its growth to stop what God, what he's trying to do. And of course, the gates is a metaphor for the armies that line up behind the gates when they protect the city or go out from the city to conquer. So the armies of Satan will not be able to defeat Christ and his church building. But we know, and what Jesus is saying too, is that Satan will try. He will do all he can to defeat the church. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've seen Christ clearly building his church. We've seen great evidence of Christ being involved in building his church. And we've seen Satan's armies 
trying to defeat the building of Christ's church. So as we go through the book of Acts, we keep reminding ourselves that Christ will be victorious in building his church. No doubt about it. And we will see Satan doing his evil worst to try to overcome it. And we have to take shelter from the wiles of the devil and draw close to Christ in order to not be one of his victims. And then one more very important practical part before we turn to our passage this morning. You know, we've mentioned many times that today we're seeing so many people turning away from the faith, from the Christian faith. It's like more than we've seen in, in years. And it's often when they hit hard times in their life, they become disillusioned. They just kind of start, their minds start becoming confused. Um, they're thinking, God, where, where are you in this? What am I supposed to be doing? They're not just staying straight with what they have learned and what they can see in, this, in the word. Or it's when they see something horrible going on in the world and saying, there must not be a God if he allows that. Now, I believe the book of Acts shows us the true picture of God working out his plan while Satan is doing everything he can to cause people to turn away from God. So you've got this battle going on, and to me it makes perfect sense. You know, some look at that and say, well, there, there must not be a God. Or... <clears throat> You know, I'm, I'm with the wrong team or something. But really, it just shows you what Jesus told us. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Satan will not be able to overcome it. Now, in our journey, we've recently seen the Apostle Paul take center stage in Luke's account of the church being built. And this map shows us the uh, travels of Paul, the apostle, on his second missionary journey. We've already been through his first. And you know, if you start there in Jerusalem and you go north, that's where his second missionary journey, that's the route he took. And we've seen those churches at Antioch, Phrygia, Mysia, Troas, and that, those areas. Recently, we've seen him go to Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Apollonia Berea, Thessalonica, and today we're going to see him going to Corinth and Ephesus. So you can see the route that he's taking and, and all the people he's meeting and the places where he's taking the gospel to. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul paid a heavy price to play out the lead role in the spreading of the good news of the gospel of Christ. I mean, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was ridiculed, he was resisted. Wherever he went, he had people scheming to try to take him down. He was arrested because people were reporting him. Last week we saw Paul reach Athens. It was a city filled with idols to a ridiculous degree. There were temples and shrines and statues and altars. There were images of Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana. The whole Greek pantheon was there. All the gods of Olympus were there. And it was so overwhelming to Paul when he saw all of that. 
going on throughout the city. He was indignant. He saw the futility, the emptiness, people giving glory to fake gods, the glory that belongs only to the true God. And that's what made him so disillusioned because he knew how powerful and glorious the true God was. And here they were worshiping statues and animals and that sort of thing. And then they even had an altar dedicated to the unknown God. They were afraid they might miss one. All that Paul saw drove him to the synagogue and to the marketplace. He was supposed to be waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him from the last place, but he couldn't take it anymore, and so he started in all by himself. And as he preached to, <clears throat> about Jesus to the market, in the marketplace, he was invited to come to the Areopagus. It was a meeting place where scholars and professional debaters would love to go and argue over all kinds of matters. And they invited Paul to tell them more about this Jesus being resurrected. What in the world is that? And then Paul gave them some real pertinent points to think on. First he said, what I'm going to do today is tell you about this unknown God that I saw the dedication to, the, to that altar to. You built an altar to the unknown God. And he gives them five main points about God. And each one was just totally out of their world. He says, God is the creator of the universe. Whoa. Someone created it, huh? God is the sustainer of life. Hmm, I thought we did that. He's the only reason we live. He rules over all the nations. And he determines what nations come to be and when they go out of, out of existence. And they're thinking, whoa, pretty powerful. He's the father of all human beings. All humanity came from one man by God's creation. And he is the judge of the world, and we will answer to him. <clears throat> I thought those were pretty um, brilliant points to make to these people from where they were at. And it kind of seems to me that our society needs those same points today. We could use a little bit of that kind of teaching seems we're getting really fuzzy on the basics as far as an American society. And this kind of knowledge that we just said used to be just common knowledge in America. That was just the basics. But in our self-sufficient, brilliant, modern brilliance, we're becoming like the ancient Athens, Athenians. But this morning we're going to travel with Paul into Corinth. <clears throat> and if you've read the, the letter to the Corinthians, you can remember that they had lots of problems in their church. They were quite a group of Christians with a, not a good reputation. And I've always kind of thought of our American society now, you know, during these decades. It's, it's kind of similar, having some similarities with the Corinthian church. Because you see, you see them fighting each other over power in the church. 
you see, uh, you see them <clears throat> desiring celebrity status. They really like the trinkets. Some of them are full of themselves, lacking in care for others. But now we're approaching Corinth, where Paul is going to preach the gospel to them. And as we look in here, we won't be getting into their church culture very deeply. We're meeting them before they are a church. But I want you to look at the first four verses of 1 Corinthians, I mean, uh, uh, um, Acts chapter 18, where he goes to Corinth. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a, new, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, Aquila and Priscilla. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. <clears throat> Christ is continuing to build his church through the apostles in these early days. But as we keep seeing, this church building requires a lot of human effort. So Christ is building his church, and he has, you know, the main part in building it. But it takes a lot of human effort and endurance and adjustments and roadblocks. And sometimes you think, well, if God is in it, it's just going to go smooth. But that's not the way it works, is it? And of course, we see Satan's hand in it, too. As Aquila and Priscilla are kicked out of Rome. But because of Aquila and Priscilla being forced out of Rome, they end up teaming up with Paul. They were tent makers, just like Paul. And can you see the hand of God working in that? You know, Paul goes to Corinth. He's not with the people who are with him. All of a sudden, there are these two tent makers that are chased out of Rome, and they're Christians. And then they team up, and Paul stays with them. He works with them. And so God is caring for Paul, and he's helping him reach the Corinthians. It looks like God has met Paul's need of encouragement and company when he could really use some. As he's walking around seeing all this idolatry. And it came from Claudius's decree to kick all the Jews out of Rome. So you know, when you see these things happening, each incident, there are bad things happening. Kicking the Jews out of Rome. But they meet up with Paul. They're tent makers. That's Paul's trade. They meet together. They encourage one another. Now they're going spreading the gospel at Corinth. God can turn man's evil intentions into something good for his purposes. So we don't have to lose heart. Sometimes we just have to wait to see what God is doing through um, Circumstances that don't look that good. Now I want you to look at verses 5 through 11. <clears throat> it says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, so he, he doesn't have to make tents anymore. 
testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, and that's more like when they were, their word has to do with blaspheming. They were blaspheming the things that he was saying, blaspheming Christ. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He said, you know, you're not listening. You're not taking in what I'm saying. I'm moving on. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, you know, where Paul just came from, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. <clears throat> For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Many people to be reached. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, <clears throat> we never know when God is going to take some difficult or disappointing circumstance and turn it into something good, do we? And when we run into difficult circumstances, we usually don't think of that. We usually don't think, ah, oh, this is so painful. I wonder what God's going to do with it. We could, right? Maybe some of you do. I'll try to get to that point someday. But Paul was obediently taking the gospel to the Jews. And his aim was to introduce them to eternal life because they had always followed the law, which they couldn't do. And he was trying to tell them the right way that God was showing him. And they responded by being abusive. They were blaspheming Christ. It says Paul shook out his clothes in protest. So in response to their blaspheming, he took out, probably had a garment like a cloak or something and just shook it saying, I'm not even going to take one speck of dust with me from this. He will have nothing to do with their disrespect of Christ and his message. And so he goes next door to the house of Titius Justus, the synagogue leader whom he just who was the synagogue leader of the, of the synagogue he just left. And Crispus turns to the Lord. And many of the Corinthians did the same and were baptized, making bold public professions of Christ, of faith in Christ. And then God encourages Paul and says, keep going. I've got many people in this city and no one's going to attack or harm you. And he ends up staying there a year and a half. You know, God can take bad and make good out of it, can't he? God can take something that you can't see anything good in and turn it into good. The Bible is full of these kinds of happenings, and we see him. And not that Paul's life was easy, it wasn't, it was very hard. And it's hard to keep that in mind when we're going through bad stuff, isn't it? 
I think that's why they call it faith. And I think that's why the Bible stresses perseverance so much. Perseverance is, a, is something that the Bible stresses a lot. That means that we just hang in there during the tough times. It's part of hope, faith. And that's why those who are today walking away from the faith, they should totally reconsider. Because perseverance is something that God wants us to build within ourselves and keep going. And when things look bad, we got to have that trust in him. And sometimes the bad things do bad things. And sometimes we get hurt by them. But God has a plan for us to come out on the other side. And in these next verses, we're going to see another uprising against Paul by the Jews in Corinth. You're thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't God say I, no one will harm you? Well, look at verses 12 through 17. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, <clears throat> the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter for yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Nice guys, right? Somebody has to take the punishment. But the Lord's promise rang true, didn't it? He promised no one would attack and harm Paul at this point. Now, that wasn't always the Lord's promise. Paul did get attacked and harmed in different places. But God said he wouldn't be attacked and harmed there. And um, I guess he didn't make the same promise to Sosthenes. He got beat up. But the point is, God promised Paul he wouldn't be harmed here in Corinth. And even when it looked like he was definitely going to be attacked by the Jews, it didn't happen. God can keep every promise, can't he? There are promises in the Bible that we can't just even, we can't even imagine how God can keep them. And when we read through the Bible and we see the stories, we see how it happened, but we would have never guessed it would have happened that way. But God can keep every promise, no matter how unlikely the promise seems. He can always be trusted to 100%. Now, that isn't saying nothing bad will ever happen if we are serving God. We know that there is suffering in the Christian life. There's supposed to be suffering in the Christian life. He is, he is shaping us for our eternal lives. We are promised suffering. And Paul suffered enormously. But that's why the call to persevere 
It's so prominent in the Bible. See, God's promises are always certain. Many times we think that they didn't come true because of the way something happened to us or the way that something happened to somebody else. The promises in the Bible often do not come about the way that we envision they will. God promises us something, and we kind of work out the details in our minds. But a lot of times, when God promises something, he's not going by our details. And it may take a, a lot longer to get around to that than we were thinking. We were thinking of the easy road to get to that promise. And for some, in some instances, he takes us through the harder road to get to that promise. And that's often when we get discouraged, when we have thought out what God's plan is, and he hasn't told us the details of the plan. But let's see now what happens to Paul. You know, God told him he would not be hurt there, and he wasn't. So let's see what happens to Paul as he finishes his time in Corinth. So we're going to look at verses 18 through 23. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria. He's heading back towards Jerusalem. Accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. Oftentimes, you know, they would take vows... Uh, in asking God to do something, help them through this difficult situation. And th th these were Nazarite vows that people would take at times from here, you know, in difficult times in their life. And if they did it the way, you know, in an Old Testament, they would let their hair grow until the vow was complete. Then they would cut their hair saying, and that was praise to God. He may have been, you know, praying for his journey here. He sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised... I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. <clears throat> After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You know, the Apostle Paul was quite an amazing servant of Christ, wouldn't you say? I mean, he was, he was totally sold out to Christ. You know, the haircut we just mentioned, keeping a vow. But as they arrive in Ephesus, Paul goes into the synagogue to reason with the Jews concerning Jesus Christ, and I assume it's, he's talking about Christ and his resurrection as he did everywhere. And that word reason 
has the idea of trying to convince. So Paul is completely sold on, on steering the Jews toward seeing Christ as the Messiah. I mean, that's his, that's his heartbeat. He's going to them and he's trying to persuade them, you know, with everything he has to turn to Christ because that's the one they've been waiting for for centuries and centuries. And here he is, here he was. And he goes so hard at it and it often gets him in trouble. It threatens his very life. But it's what he lives for, isn't it? Paul was captured by Christ on that road to Damascus and he spent the remainder of his life serving the cause of Christ, obeying the commands of Christ, giving his whole life over to spread the gospel message. And you can see why Jesus chose Paul at the very time he was breathing murderous, murderous threats against the early followers of Christ. And Jesus says, that's my man. And I can imagine, you know, after he knocked him off his, well, they always say he knocked him off his horse, I don't know. He knocked him down. I can imagine God saying, oh, thank I, I okay, I think I have my starting lineup now. And it says that after Paul spent some time in Antioch, he traveled throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. And that is very important, isn't it? Sometimes we may get the, the feeling, you know, as we're talking to people, if someone crosses over that line and becomes a Christian, we may think, oh, they did it. Or we're so rejoicing, and that, yeah, that is rejoicing, but it's so important to keep with new Christians, young Christians. It's so important to stay with a young Christian because young Christians need strengthening. Old Christians need strengthening, right? And when we take the time to help out or spend time with a young believer, a new believer, we are doing a great service for the Lord. And maybe some of those people, probably some of those people who are walking away from Christ now, didn't have that good encouragement at the beginning or after the beginning. It's a very, very valuable service that we can, that we can play, we can, we can do when we're helping young Christians, young people, even if they've been a Christian a long time. When people move out of their homes, now they, it's almost like they, they, they enter a new part of their life in their Christian life. <clears throat> and so they need our help, us who are older. And so we need to, you know, think of people whose faith may be, you know, because of their age, because of their circumstances, their faith may be possibly in danger from Satan's wiles. And so now let's end this morning with being introduced to another special servant of Christ. Verses 24 through 28, it ends our chapter. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. They wanted to fill him in on where he was lacking. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers, said, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. <clears throat> Apollos, a dedicated, fervent servant of Christ, spent time in God's word, spent time being taught by others, spoke boldly for the Lord, pointed people to Jesus, he taught about Jesus accurately. He said he only knew the baptism of John. John's baptism was we're being baptized in repentance of our sins so that we may receive forgiveness from God. And of course, Jesus baptized was here is the forgiveness. So they teach him. And he's even stronger. He's preparing people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. He's preparing people's hearts to, to accept the Messiah. And now Priscilla and Aquila are catching him up on the latest workings of God. So, <clears throat> who do people say the Son of Man is? We know the truth, don't we? We can tell them who he is, can't we? So many people today want to make Jesus into someone who will just agree with us on anything that we want to be. Anything that we want to be right. Well, Jesus wouldn't do that to me. Jesus wouldn't. This person doesn't know Jesus at all. Many think he's the one who will attaboy us on anything we decide to do. The standards we have decided are good enough. He will agree with us on what we've determined right or wrong. That's the mindset of the person who doesn't know Christ. And that isn't the way it works, is it? We must help others see God's way of salvation and following Christ. We must take them to the word. You know, it's very inconvenient in, in many cases to have God's word if you meet somebody. But boy, when you can take people and open the Bible to them and show them the verse, that makes a big difference than just saying it. And I, that happened to me, and it happened to people that I talked to. When I showed them the verse and they read it, it was like it went two feet deeper. And then we will be in the line of the Apostle Paul and we can be great helpers like Aquila and Priscilla showing them God's way more fully. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the book of Acts and how much it teaches us and how many things that we can learn as far as spreading your word, as far as teaching people about you. We thank you for this, the stories of people and how we're able to learn from those even deeper than if we just had doctrine. So we thank you for your word, Lord. Help us to treasure it, take it in, ingest it, uh, love it, and give it to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.